0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Mind Ki Baat where we discuss the part that really matters your mind or more specifically mental health I am your host Shardul and in this episode and the one after that we'll discuss trauma in detail I don't imagine that we'll be able to cover every aspect of it uh, you know everything that falls under the definition of trauma but I hope these episodes act as a window into the life of a person who, who who has been traumatized and is going through with it, or has been through one of the worst experiences a person can have in their lives.
1: I used to yell and scream at nights, and my parents used to hold me tight just to remind me that I was not alone. Like the amount of times I had said no got me scared. Eating scared me, sleeping scared me, walking scared me. I was in class 12 at that time. There was just so much in my head that I was blaming myself I like. wanted to scream, but all the screams were just inside my head
0: and I couldn't ask for help.
2: Till it happens to you, you all know how I feel. This is a News Laundry Podcast and you're
0: listening to Mind Keeper. This episode will exclusively focus on trauma faced by women due to sexual assault, you know, violence, be it domestic violence, but primarily what happens to women in our society. Although the issue is discussed on societal level a lot. People know about this but don't really understand what it means to be traumatized how people go through their lives after something like this has happened. And I hope the people who listen to this at least get an idea in broad strokes, what are the major causes of not just trauma, but how people deal with it and how they struggle with this experience. Because for most of us who read this through news or don't read news, but just hear them in, hear them on social media or many other avenues. We just discard them in a couple of days or at most a week, it becomes just a footnote, you know, something we read or something we heard. So, one more disclaimer before I introduce our guests. We couldn't find anyone who would agree to speak to us and fit in our schedule. There were some who were willing to speak to us but couldn't give us time. But there were also a few women who wanted to speak but didn't because of many personal reasons. Let me rephrase that. Because they were afraid of some kind of backlash or repercussion when they discussed this publicly. And if this doesn't tell you the scale and, you know, seriousness of this problem, then I don't know what else will. With that, let me go to both of our wonderful guests who were generous enough to make space in their schedules for this conversation. Our first guest is Divya Dawar. Divya is the co-founder and senior clinical psychologist at MEAS, which is an organization which primarily focuses on mental health awareness, support and also providing legal rights for people who need them. She works with her clients in assessing, diagnosing, and managing their conditions, and works with a lot of women uh, women who have faced sexual or other types of violence in their lives. Welcome, Divya. Welcome to News Laundry.
1: Thank you so much for having me here.
0: Our second guest is Nidhi Suresh. Well, Nidhi is no stranger to the listeners who have been associated with News Laundry. Hello, Nidhi.
1: Hi, Shadu.
2: Uh,
0: but for those who don't know her, Nidhi is an exceptional journalist who is currently working as a correspondent with Deutsche Welle, DW, right? Yes. I am not good with German. (laughs) Uh, Neither am I. (laughs) (laughs) Before that, she worked with News Laundry for three years and has also written for Himal magazine, Scroll, Caravan and many other reputed publications. She has and continues to report on gender-based violence, violence against women. And in my personal opinion, she has a knack for finding out these kind of issues which are being unnoticed in public. Hmm. And right, very, I would not say informative because that seems to limit the trauma of the person being discussed. But as an editor and as a person who's involved in journalism, very good reports. So welcome, Nidhi.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Shadur.
0: Before I go to our guest, a few things to note about. You know, gender-based violence and sexual violence in India. Almost everyone knows that sexual assault and violence against women is a big problem in India. Despite all the problems in media in our system, nobody refutes this reality. But numbers do help us gauge the magnitude of a problem. So let's look at them. According to Ministry of Statistics and Program Implementation's report released in March 2023, 22.8 lakh crimes were committed against women between 2016 to 2021. But these cases include all types of crimes. If we look at the violent crimes and crimes of assaults on women, which are charged under section 354 of IPC, 5.2 lakh cases were registered in these six years. The number of reported kidnappings and abductions was 4.14 lakhs. And the number of rapes and sexual assault complaints were 1.96 lakhs. Now, anyone who knows the Indian legal system would tell you that these are registered numbers, especially when it comes to sexual assaults and rape. There are a multitude of societal, economical and personal reasons which compel and sometimes force women to not report a crime or an attempt of crime against herself. In fact, the number of unreported crimes, especially violent crimes against women, is still significantly larger than the reported number. And you'll find that sociologists, Legal experts and social workers of all ideologies agree on this. With that in mind, let's listen to what our guests have to say. Divya, I want to ask you this first. While Nidhi has, you know, in her reportage, during her reporting, and a few cases I've seen personally in my life, you know, have seen victims of sexual violence, but you work with them regularly and, you know, get them on their feet, I imagine. Help them deal with their issues. So... How does one talk to them? And I know this question may sound quite basic to our listeners listeners or ignorant. But from what I've seen, most of the people in our society lose those victims at this very stage. How does one talk to a person who has been through such an ordeal which is difficult to imagine for most people?
1: Now uh, before I begin answering your yeah. question, it is not a trivial question. And it's not something that is basic. Yes. Because to be very honest, it's One of the most important aspects to dealing with not just people of, uh, you know, any abuse. I'm not even talking about women who have had violent abusers. I'm talking about anybody, be it child, adult, geriatric population for that matter. It is very important to understand how do you speak to them. It is very important to be trained to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a reason why we go through such extensive training, is to just understand that it is important to have a certain vocabulary when you're talking to people who have been through abuse. Having said the word vocabulary here, there are certain words that we refrain from, Mm -hmm. not just because it is going to trigger them uh, Mm -hmm. into going back into experiencing that trauma all over again, but also for them to be able to build a bond with us. Mm-hmm. These individuals go through so many things in their own social life. Once they come out and they express about their trauma experiences, their social life goes through a very bad overhauling. Uh, this overhauling can be positive also that there are individuals who are supporting oh. them, but there is a great uh, you know, capacity of people who are present who are basically judging them, putting them down, telling them that, you know, you should have left earlier. Some people telling them, why did you stay for so long? Mm -hmm. Some people being, you know, disregarding their own, uh, you know, experiences. So there are these words that we tend to not use with them. And they can be depending on their own personal experiences. So once I get a little bit of idea about who this person is, my my certain vocabulary starts building around them. That's one. Secondly the kind of empathy and the kind of environment that they need is very important to become someone that this person will come to speak to as openly as they can and as freely as they can i need to be empathetic towards them and i need to be for for a lack of a better word strong hearted myself to listen to whatever it is that they're going to come and tell me yeah um i'll i'll use this i'll give a quick example um i've Seen many clients, but there have been two, three of my clients who have sat down in sessions, session after session for that matter, and explained in detail what they went through day after day because they just needed somebody to listen. Hmm. And for that moment, I had to be that person to just sit there and listen as their therapist because at that moment, when they are expressing themselves, all they need is somebody to just hear them out because they can't tell this to their family out of guilt out of, you know, feeling that they will put a lot of pressure on them. They can't tell this to their friends because, again, that feeling of guilt is very persistent. As a therapist, I am not somebody that they're supposed to feel guilty, you know, expressing yeah. what it is that they felt. And um, it has, it it does put me on an individual basis in a very... Uh, difficult spot at times. I think when I was a much younger therapist, it was much more difficult for me because as a woman, you kind of start making a certain connection with this person. So it was uh, a training, I would say, for me as well to learn how to draw that boundary with them and to listen to them empathetically but not become a part of their problem. My job is to give them a solution and not be another empathetic listener and just stay there. Yeah. So, uh, again, when we go back to talking to them, it is going to be a lot of the vocab, a lot of, you know, the empathy end of it. And along with all of this, building a very, very safe environment for them. Yes. To be able to be as open as possible.
0: Okay, so, you know, I had written this down for later to bring this up later in, in conversation. But this fear of being judged and not tend to trust people around them, especially people who victims knew before the incident. And that also translates to sometimes, you know, trusting someone who they don't really know. Like, not a therapist, but somebody they met online. And and this is happening a lot these days. Why does this happen? Why this lack of trust in people who had nothing to do with that incident? Or, or like you mentioned, the guilt. Because as far as I understand, they are not the guilty ones.
1: Okay. Um... There's this interesting, you know, if you listen to a lot of podcasts, we get to know this. And even I listen to a lot of them. Um, And there was this podcast about a woman who had survived uh, domestic abuse. Mm -hmm. And she talks about certain stages of domestic abuse. And if I'll just quickly run through them. The first one is seduction. You're seduced by this person to fall into love with them. You will realize in a lot of these situations, there... Uh, the the relationship with their abuser builds very suddenly, very deeply, and mm. they suddenly feel a surge of uh, emotion for this individual. So there's this. It's not falling in love so much. It is just being uh, surrounded and kind of suffocated being swept in Swept off their feet. Swept off their feet. Suffocated in love. Okay. Almost. Yeah. Um, the second phase, or what lasts the longest, is the delusion. And this is where most people live in that state for as long as they do. And when I use the word delusion here, it's not the technical, I'm not yeah, yeah. I'm not using the technical word delusion. Yes. It's, it's a phrase that's been given to it. Um, and here delusion in itself means where the person is made to feel, gaslighting, that mm-hmm. they are the one who's wrong. Right. And it's their fault why this person has hit them. It's their fault why this person is not speaking to them. It's their fault why it has been happening. Over a period of time, in an abusive relationship, this, let's talk as the victim and the abuser, the abuser systematically breaks down this person's entire self-esteem and construct. The moment I break someone's self-esteem and construct, I make them very, very flimsy. So they're very, very malleable. Yep. I can make them do anything I want. So having said this, this person is bound to feel guilty for anything and everything, sometimes mm-hmm. even uh, illogical things, which is why it yeah. is so abusive in nature. And as you go up the ladder of abuse, it gets worse and worse. So at this point, when this individual is made to feel so guilty in that relationship, when they lead to the other stages, which mm-hmm. is how to get out, the coming out, the surfacing, and then actually taking the action of getting out mm-hmm. of that abusive relationship, they feel guilty for other people also. It's an induced guilt where they will not share that piece of information. Yes, trust issue is one, but that trust issue is not, I don't trust the other person. I feel that if I share this piece of information, my abuse will get worse or they will go abuse this other person. So I'm scared. Right. And. Then the guilt factor comes from the thing Because I don't have a self-esteem That is strong enough to be like No, this is I am the victim If that was the case I would have not A, taken that abuse for as long as it did But the fact that My entire psyche Is so flimsy at this point It's so fragile I will not do anything To make it worse Even with people The victims don't even share information With their own parents Parents who are supportive they're not parents who will push them back into the marriage. Yeah. Because of the fear that what if this uh, abuser does something to me worse? What if my parents can't get me out of this? What if they they start feeling guilty for putting me in this situation? I can't make them go through what I am going through. I'm hmm. to suffering. Why should I make somebody else suffer with me?
0: Achha. So, this is, hypothetically, this was... Uh, this was a victim who was abused over a period of time, you know, systematically broken. Their psyche was broken down and, you know, penetrated. Does shock, uh, is shock a factor in breaking someone's, you know, self-esteem and trust? When this ha- incident happens, you know, out of the spur of a moment, like immediately, when, when the abuser was not known, On he, he generally he, generally there are men, generally the man didn't have history with the victim, just the, the sexual violence happened because the opportunity presented to that guy. Does, is shock, uh, I mean, what I'm trying to say is does shock do the same thing what this systematic abuse does? Because from personal experience I'm telling you without you know, revealing any details, even in spur of the moment sort of an incident which could not have been predicted by any shape or form. Sort of resultant psyche was this and it took a long time for that uh, person to get out of it
1: see uh, if you go into technicalities it will be somewhat different but it still falls under the same umbrella yeah. term of trauma yes so yes. because the the umbrella term remains the same and it is a sort of violent act against this person yeah it, it may be over a period of time it may be a sudden act it may be of any category for yeah. that matter. Certain responses still remain the same. Yeah. So, uh, for example, PTSD. PTSD mm-hmm. is, is, you know, there can be several uh, domains under which that can fall. It can be PTSD on war, earthquake, natural disaster, trauma of such episodes. PTSD is an umbrella term here. We are using multiple episodes where it could occur.
0: So I'm right in assuming that you know more or less it
1: will more or less be similar yep. but yes that guilt will be more consistent it and when you have kind of taken your time to break down somebody so much the individual stays in that place for longer right. the time period can differ yep. that is yep. that is one of those components that differs yeah
0: so nidhi like Divya gave us uh, the point of view of a person who's there for them and listens to them, who will not judge them, give them safe space. As a reporter, you've interacted with many women like this. I don't imagine that they would, especially with the media, what it is at large doing these days. I, it would be difficult for you, much more difficult for you to create any kind of safe space around them. Because most of the time that this, the location is not controlled by you the you know the scenario you meet that person is not controlled by you so how do you talk to them like what have you seen uh, the biggest hurdles for you and for them to to just voicing what's happened to them forget about you know any conclusion any any anything else
2: i think uh, i mean i think the biggest difference between the work that divya and i do is that a lot of times in divya's case there's someone who's coming to her, wanting to share. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I'm actually walking into someone's house. Yeah. I have the audacity, almost as a journalist, to yeah. walk into someone's house and say, "Tell me about the worst moment of your life." Yeah. Right. Which is quite entitled in the very act of it. Yeah. So I feel like there's a huge amount of uh, humility that is required in that moment. Because there's absolutely no reason for someone to open up to me, right? Nobody needs to. Because it's my job is fairly self centric in the sense of I need to write my report, I need to meet a deadline, I need to put this out. Yes. Um, And I think with survivors, it's tricky because there's also a certain perception with which we we have in the media, we have in the public space about uh, a person who survived sexual assault. Yes. Uh, Like for example, I have realized that the real Story or the real uh, quote-unquote feelings mm-hmm. of the women have often happened over a period of time, much after I filed the report. Yep. Like just things like they may have fallen into alcohol addiction. Yes.
0: Right.
2: Which which doesn't fit into the narrative of of a, of nobody yeah. wants to 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 see that like you want yes. the perfect victim when you're writing a story. Yes. Right? You that that and they also want to present that and. I have realized that I don't want to use the word lies, but often I have felt that even survivors, they have to have a certain narrative to be believed. Yes. Right? Which which I have always found interesting. Initially, I struggled with the idea because I felt, okay, then there's some amount of lying that's seeping into my reporting. It's not authentic. They're mm-hmm. not really telling me the story. They are exaggerating certain parts of it. But I mean, I myself have, I mean, every woman... In this room, in this country, in who's this, listening, in this world, has faced some say, amount of sexual violence. Yes. And you know that the system is not going to believe you. I mean, we have a system that doesn't believe women who have medical reports that say this. right? Yes. Um, so I feel like I've almost accepted that sometimes a survivor may say things that may not have happened, but ha- are slightly exaggerated. But it's part of that experience of not being believed. Mm -hmm. Right. So I have tried to find a way to make space for that and also make space for them to come back and say, okay, it wasn't exactly that way. Like the narrative doesn't have to be chronological or cohesive in the way that we want narratives Mm -hmm. to be. Um, And I feel allowing room for that back and forth is the only way to have. The conversation that it's okay if you say something that didn't happen, but then you come back and say that, okay, this was what happened. And for me, in that sense, like they don't owe me anything. They don't owe me the truth. They don't owe
0: me. They don't owe you anything. anything,
2: Yes. So uh, the safe space that I create really has to like, it's purely because I want them to share it with me. Right. Like, because I, a lot of times I'm put in an awkward position because I feel like, um, when when i approach a survivor there is the sense of what's it what am i going to get from sharing this and i have to be honest in the fact that possibly nothing yeah right like sometimes telling your family doesn't get you anything telling the closest person in your life that this happened doesn't get you anything so there's nothing that's going to come from telling me
0: um sometimes like even if you think something would happen that ultimately amounts to nothing but we, we'll yeah. come to that so yeah. one thing and I imagine this, but yeah. violence, violent incidents, although I haven't seen sexual violence, but, you know, even in accidents and any, any kind of trauma, there are memory gaps. Hmm. So I imagine people try to do that too. I mean, women who have been through this, who you spoke to try to do that too. So when you talk to them again and again, hmm. how does this translate? Because what Divya said, I, I imagine that they would feel guilty about that too with you. Has that happened?
2: Yes and no, because I feel like one is memory gap, which is unintentional, which actually happens with trauma. I feel uh, like
0: this is how human brain works.
2: And I feel like it's also in the details, right? Sometimes you don't exactly like, especially as a reporter, I've realized initially I used to as a young reporter be like, tell me what happened where you want someone to describe the act of sexual violence. But a lot of times I've realized sometimes what a woman really remembers in that moment is the feeling of the glass that her head was leaning against and not exactly the act it itself, mm-hmm. right? She may remember the feeling of the floor in that moment. yeah. And it is then for me to know that this, this is also the language of trauma. Yes. Right? So there are memory gaps which are unintentional, but there are also memory, like, no, I wouldn't call it memory gaps, but there are gaps which happen intentionally. And I feel like that's also okay because it's also part of the trauma narrative. Because we we live in a system that just doesn't believe women. Yeah. Right. There is, like I like in the Hathras case when we were reporting the Hathras yes. gang rape, I still remember the lawyer, the defense lawyer who was defending the accused in this case, mm-hmm. sitting in the room with his granddaughter in his lap and saying that. But this isn't a rape case. Her genitals weren't hurt. The, her intestine was not out. Um, this the Nirbhaya case had it was so be, like brazen. So when you have you know, that is that is what you're up against. So why yes. will I not add a little detail to my story to make myself more believable? Yes. And that's something I've learned to accept as a reporter. That that's part of their trauma right. narrative.
0: Because most people don't, don't really gauge this reality. For yeah. them, it's just what they read and this is what happened. Yeah. Just two sentences. Yeah. Divya, there is one point which also came up, at least in my interpretation. Please correct me if I'm wrong victims tend to disregard their own suffering too sometimes they tend to you know they want to you know shut themselves off for it they don't want to admit to it and it seems like they want to save whatever in their imagination has remained in their lives it may or may not be true like it depends from person to person and where they come from which part of society and privilege also comes into it but from a psychologist's point of view, why would a victim do that? And again, for the fault of sounding repetitive, I'm asking this because these are very basic questions, but people don't really understand them.
1: Um, Okay, if you talk about why this person shuts them off, or why they shut themselves off, if there is a room full of 100 women today, I can assure you, not even less than 5 people are getting out of that abusive relationship mm-hmm. if there are if there are 100 women in, in an abusive relationship inside a room not even 5 less than 5 and right. there's a reason for that uh, the simple reason is the second stage the denial yeah. I am re- living in denial I am living in a cocooned upstairs because this is homeostasis this this abusive environment is my comfort zone which may sound very very illogical to most people who hear this but only somebody who's in that state will understand that how do I get out? Yeah. Most people who come to me for therapy they always either if they are very fresh out of the traumatic state or they've been out of it for a fairly long time but haven't been able to actually get out of it Hmm. in their headspace. Yeah. Um, they come up with this question and they seem very annoyed and frustrated when they have to answer it and they're like why does everybody keep asking me or telling me why did I stay for so long why did I stay for so long why does nobody ask me how did I leave Mm -hmm. because nobody wants to understand that staying was easier rather because I had gotten so used to that phenomenon I had adapted or maladapted for, uh, for a better you know use a better word Into that system that was built around me by my abuser. I had molded myself to fit into this. Whatever structure was built around me. And now, if I have to get out of it, I don't have another structure. The logistical, see, somebody who has decided that they want to leave their abuser then starts thinking, there are finances, there is this. By that point, till they've reached that end, they're not even considering this. Yeah, And then comes the barriers, the barriers of actually how do you get out of it? Because until that point, I am very comfortable in my homeostasis, in my positioning, being abused. And if my abuser is not abusing, then I'm worried. This individual... I, I still remember this case. Um This is she, an
0: interesting thing.
1: Yeah, she came to me one day and we were we we were discussing a lot of the past traumas and she during that discussion one day just randomly spoke to me and she's like, I'm very anxious all the time. This this is much after she had, you know, come out of that relationship and I was like, Why are you anxious all the time? She's like, Because there were days I remember now where he would not do anything. And I'm using the word he because it was a woman-man relationship and the man was the abuser.
0: Um, yeah, more often than, let me jump in. More often than not, it's men who abuse. And it's, whether whether one likes it or not, but this is the reality of humankind.
1: That's that's a different discussion yes, altogether. Yes, it's but, a
0: different discussion, but like, I'm adding it. Yeah, but yes, in, please, in this
1: particular uh, situation, she basically had herself deciphered after a lot of therapy sessions that I feel that I, I used to get much more anxious when he was nicer to me. Okay. And it was interesting for me too, because I asked her, so, okay, what is, where, where are you leading with this thought? And she's like, I had gotten so used to being spoken to a certain way, being treated a certain way, that if I was treated differently, I didn't realize it was basically normalcy in reverse. So like everybody, and here I'm talking about normalcy as a continuum, mm-hmm. most people are used to being spoken to nicely or at least not rudely yes. or aggressively. And if somebody suddenly switches up and becomes aggressive or suddenly becomes, you know, rude to you, you go numb or you take time to process because it's not your normal, your normal, quote-unquote. This individual's normal is something else.
0: So, you know, this is one thing I... Although this episode is about violence against women and trauma, but this happens with children who get abused too. And definitely, I have no gumption in accepting. Like, it. Uh, I juggled with this for a long time, and it feels like it's a deep breath before the plunge. Like this nicety would be followed by something much worse, exactly, which we're not used to. So, it's, it's, is this the same thing like what children it's feel? It's
1: mostly see in when it comes to trauma, it is almost like this with everybody because. If if it there's a constant abuser in mm-hmm. this situation, if there's a constant abuser, uh, and there it's it's more so a regular affair, yes. Then it is very difficult to for this person to kind of come out of that zone, that headspace. However, if it is an intermittent sort of placed or the intervals are not fixed, they're variable intervals, and yes. there's some moment where this person will suddenly erupt then you will notice that these individuals go into a shock mode every time that happens. And then usually the reason, and coming back to that question that you had asked, the reason why they kind of shut themselves up is because usually the abuser will come back and apologize. Hmm. So you have, because see, to maintain that structure, the abuser has to bring back the seduction phase. They have to maintain that I I'm doing this for you or I am here for you. There is nobody else for you. I have to maintain that story structure. If this person, if the victim realizes when that resurfacing is actually occurring is when they're realizing that there are other people that exist who can get me out of this. Mm -hmm. But until that point, it's just them and the abuser. And the abuser is the dominant party who has made it very, very clear to this person that they are there for them and nobody else is there for them it's very difficult for a victim to then get out of this headspace. That is why that whole stage lasts. It can last weeks, it can last months, it can last years for people. And then for a lot of people, especially in our country, because see, we are community set up. So it's more difficult for us to kind of get out of relationships. Whereas the Western culture is more individualistic. They have been taught to be by themselves very independently, more so than us are usually because of the community structure and the society that we live in it's even more difficult for this person to get out and then they just come to terms with their fate they're like it's easier pleasing one abuser than talking to 100 people and explaining them my story and as Nidhi puts it these 100 people don't even or maybe not all 100 but at least 80 of them will not even believe my story so it's me against all these people who don't want to believe me versus me against one abuser who most people don't think can kill them. But yes, this one abuser. It's easier in my headspace.
0: Yeah.
2: I just want to add yeah, yeah, something please. to that. I mean, I was just thinking when you were saying that there was this one uh, survivor I had met who was going through an ordeal of a court case. Mm-hmm. And in, in passing, we had finished our interview. We Everything was done. But she said something in passing that always stuck with me that... She, she just said, you know, I think the most kindest thing that a rapist can do to a woman is to actually kill her after this. You know, don't let her stay alive to to see all the people she loves around her fail her over and over again. Yes. You know, and and also I think it's really, imp- and this is going back to the conversation of trust, you know, when you were saying that mm. why does it become so difficult to trust others who may not have been involved in this yeah. incident. There is... Sexual violence conversation is is almost always about power, right? It's, yes. It's a power thing. Yes. It's, it's a power thing. It's never like, about sex. Rape is not about sex. Yes. It's, it's not that the rapist can't get sex. <laughs> it's a feeling of, of wanting to overpower someone and show yes. somebody their place, put someone in a place and feel a certain stature or place for yourself. In many different ways, it plays out. Um, and a lot of the times... For a woman who and statistics shows that it often happens with people you trust. Yes. Right. The reporting that we do is actually the the the, the incidents which occur rarely where Yeah, where it's the inverse someone, part which
0: gets reported more. Yeah, where yes. suddenly
2: it happens when you're walking across the road. Yes. What is more common is it's your uncle, it's your father, it's it's your yes. you know, older person in the family, it's the person you got married to. Yes. Um it's anyone who's around you, who you trust. And when that happens, I feel like it shakes the entire idea of trust. Yes. Right? Like, how do you ever trust anyone in a position of power to not abuse you? Yes. Um, So, of course, you don't have an idea of trust or love. And in these trusted relationships is also where you're learning love. Right? You see what love means, what what it could entail. And when love entails abuse, like you said, in parental relationships, if your parent is going to hit a child and say, I did this for your good... How do you then love a partner who doesn't hit you? Yeah. Or believe that it is love, right?
0: You don't really know what yeah, to you, expect. It, yeah.
2: it leads
1: to all sorts of dysfunctional relationships.
2: Exactly. And it's the same with sexual violence. I feel like that, that's why the worldview of love and trust gets entirely shaken.
0: Some facts about what Nidhi mentioned about the nature of abusers, especially for children. According to YWCA study of 2017, about 93% of children who are victims of sexual abuse know their abuser. Less than 10% of sexually abused children are abused by strangers. Nearly 70% of all reported sexual assaults happen to children of ages 17 or less. Another saddening but illuminating fact. One in four girls and one in six boys will be sexually abused before they turn 18. And this is global data. Uh, Another data set coming out of this, 12.3% of women were age 10 or younger at the time of their first rape or sexual victimization. And 30% of women were between the ages of 11 and 17. 96% of people who sexually abuse children are males. 76% are married men. And 76.8% of people who sexually abuse children are adults. Now let's get back to our conversation. One thing I wanted to ask you that have you in your conversations which, which are generally quite close to the incident Mm. have you seen survivors or victims of uh, violence sexual violence or otherwise women apologizing for their abuser because what i read through in academic discussions about this like people like divya who work who have worked on this for a long time they say that this is a quite frequent thing. Have you seen this happen?
2: Yeah, I've not just a survivor, the survi- mother's mother of the survivor is also
0: apologizing uh, for the abuser.
2: Yeah, she's. I mean, it's 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 almost an apology for the situation from the mother for the for the woman being who has suffered abuse. There's especially if it's from a person who is trusted and loved. Mm-hmm. There's a guilt of disrupting the system okay. that was happening, right? Like it 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 may not have been an ideal system. May not have been a good system. But suddenly, like, you know, the way I was saying, everybody has to react to this. A father is forced to react to to it. His job gets affected. Mother's life gets affected. So it's almost in the sense of maybe that disruption was not necessary. If it was just me going through it.
0: Yeah. so, So sort of an irrational belief in going back to status quo it is.
2: Yeah, and also like Divya was saying, you know, it, when your abuser has convinced you that this is for your good, mm. at some point, survivors, I have noticed almost feel like maybe I deserved it, you know. Maybe
0: right.
2: there was a sense of, uh, but I know he had a bad childhood and I know he also suffered. I yeah. was the only one he had. How would, how will he now cope with himself? Yeah, I've heard all these things. but And, and, and they're very real feelings. Like there is no point telling a survivor, how can you feel that? because it's that's the world they're convinced in.
0: So we've talked about a lot about mental things. So I want to discuss something which which is missed or like people shudder to discuss, the physical aspects of it. Most of the times sexual violence entails physical trauma and I am not just talking about injuries, you know, like you guys know this but I'm, I'm talking about the listeners who don't know about this situation thankfully. Is It's not that the immediate injury or like the immediate aftermath of the incident. I'm talking about the physical trauma which sustains, which lasts. So, Divya, like, let me ask you first. Um, I don't even know how to ask this question. What does your work entail, which helps them recover from it? Like, I know how how it feels, but I'm finding it hard to say it in a from a woman's perspective.
1: I think the, the best way to answer this is I would use my experience to do this mm-hmm. because uh, theoretically it's it will seem too flat to be very honest and to understand the magnitude of the situation theory will not fit the bill.
0: What do you mean by flat?
1: Flat as in you will not be able to actually ex- experience it in your head the kind of situation this person is going through. Mm-hmm. So... Um, for example, if there is somebody who has broken a certain limb, let's say somebody has broken a foot. Yeah, there's a bad fracture. It was a really bad fracture. You have you had to go through surgery for it. Mm-hmm. No, the leg is fixed. There is stitches which you can see. The physical mark of that stitch is visible to you. And for the rest of your life, the doctor tells you don't put pressure on it. And for the rest of your life, whenever you are doing an activity, you will be extra cautious to not put pressure on that leg. Mm-hmm. That is the repercussion of that foot breaking, which continues for the rest of your life. Mm. That incident has gone in the past. When I talk about theory, this is what I mean when I say flat. This is flat. It makes it it makes more sense. Okay, scientifically, I can't put pressure on my leg. Now, if I if I go back to let's say, a, a, a client who's gone through this abuse, I find it the most difficult with young clients and most of them are young to ever make them go back into healthy relationships. Right. It is so difficult for them to even consider sitting close to somebody. And here, sometimes it's not even men or women. It's just everybody in general. Yeah. Physical contact is an absolute no. And how do you have relationships of intimate category without at least having some amount of physical intimacy with this yes. person? And see, it's like one person who has suffered trauma is entering into a relationship, probably with a healthy person, but putting this healthy person through trauma. of Because it gets transferred. <coughs> yeah. This person's trauma will go on to somebody else's life. So my job is to stop the cycle so that some other healthy person doesn't get involved. Um, there are individuals who come back and they will tell me in therapy sessions that you know I sometimes still feel like somebody's putting pressure on me when I sleep at night. I feel somebody's body weight on me. Yeah. I feel if someone walks into my room in the middle of the night or somebody suddenly erupts from somewhere I get so panicky that I start sweating. Sometimes a person has fainted because she got so scared that someone has entered the room and she didn't she didn't anticipate the person didn't knock and just entered the room. She's like I fainted because I was I was so stressed about it and it was just another person it wasn't anything to feel bothered about There have been people who have come into therapy sessions and said that I cannot have another person touch me I just can't have that feeling I can't go to there's this woman who said that I can't go to the tailor because if he takes my measurements I can't stand there Yeah She's like I just can't so my mother has to take my measurements and go to the tailor And that in itself is an anxiety provoking task for me. To just have somebody touch me. And this person is not even touching me inappropriately. Having that person in your therapy session, it becomes very difficult at times to just get them back on their feet, to get back into relationships. Because everywhere else, their physical trauma can still be dealt with. Mm -hmm. It's that relationship where it reflects quite a bit a new relationship where the reflection is because there's another person getting involved here the reflection is pretty high and then you will realize the guilt kind of comes back so what Nidhi was speaking about that this person is uh, you know kind of compensating for the guilt for their abuser this guilt comes back and they feel they are the abusers at this point yeah Oh, I'm the person who's doing this to somebody else now. I am this person. I have done this.
0: Why can't I go? Get why can't this? I just
1: get intimate with this person? <laughs> not realizing that the moment they do that, they just go back into that entire ocean of memories because it was easier to kind of lock it up and keep it in one yeah. corner. Yeah. And that is why when they come into therapy, and that's true, they come into therapy. I don't go to them. Yeah. They are at a place where they're like, you know what? I cannot keep locking this up. I have to open up and I have to discuss this. Um, and the physical aspects of trauma can range from panic attacks to even feeling of like hallucinations. Yes, there are there have been clients who have have had tactile hallucinations with, where it's actually not even a hallucination. It's just a feeling where they feel it. Yeah. Uh, but when they come to you, they're like, you know what? I'm losing my mind. I feel this all the time. I feel somebody crawling on me. I feel somebody inside me. And there are these very uh, strange to some people uh, emotions that they come up with, with those physical sensations and they feel wrong. Yeah. They feel extremely wrong that they're feeling something which is absolutely not normal. And the worst part is they feel it after they're outside the trauma. So it's even worse. They're like, oh, now my trauma has ended. So when I'm I'm freed from my abuser, everything should end with it, not realizing that there are so many more repercussions, not just the barriers, societal, but their own personal, physical barriers that they have to cross yeah. by the time they reach the end.
0: And I imagine different senses trigger different parts of our memory. True. So,
2: I feel you like, were saying, I mean, for me, I was uh, quite surprised wh- while reporting on Child sexual abuse with children, mm-hmm. uh, I found that uh, there were a couple of cases where I reported where after again, like after the interview, after talking, the parents would come and tell me something. They said, and this happened consistently, that they found that the child was touching themselves at night. Yes. You know, and like and then the child was yelled at. Like the one parent came and told me, you know, I don't know what's happened to my child after this. I think she's becoming a pervert. You know, like you're not you. You just the parent also doesn't know how to yeah, yeah. address it, but but then like the child was put into counseling. The counselor has to speak to the parent and say this is a trauma response. You know, yeah. the, the, there's a, either she's trying to protect herself or there's some sort of maybe you know more about this, but but a lot of parents were then shaming their children yeah. that that because children also at some level there are children who when it happens with a very trusted person. Yes. in a different like not to use the word they liked it but th- no. it made them f- something felt nice physically and maybe only later they realized that okay that was abuse so you know in that moment there are children who have said oh but that like that person loved me and touched me
0: so you know i'm sure divya would speak mm-hmm. on it uh, with much more accuracy but what happens is that children who are abused like this what they don't really know how to, you know. There's no
2: language in that sense. Rather than
0: language, they don't know how to process this. Course, For them, yeah. everything is just, they are still learning. And they later, you know, the benefit of hindsight, we say yeah. it and so many things. They understand what happened to them and they, you know, face their trauma and you know, it hits them like a brick. But in the initial years, you don't really understand what's happening to you. Yeah. And you just don't know. Wrong. Because a few yeah.
2: like people I've have, spoken to idea. at an NGO who work with yeah. children have said that sometimes it takes a while for them to make the child understand that this what happened is wrong. Yeah. Because the child also wants to protect this person who they think loves them. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Who's doing it to them.
0: And generally it's coupled with pampering and gifts yeah. and
1: all yeah. that. So that's that's, a, that's how so they please. keep the structural. Yes. Um no, I would I would actually add to that, uh, in a very simple way. When a child is born They're born into the world to two people. And here I'm saying two people biologically, it's their father and their mother, in a very biological sense. And this child knows nothing about the world. Nothing at all, it's at zero, blank slate. Yes, I'm not disregarding genetics, I'm not disregarding their temperament or what they're born with, that is all in place, but about the world in the societal sense of it, nothing. Now, this child sees these two people as their caregivers, that these are the people who are going to protect me. Enters the abuser. Now, this abuser is the father, the mother, the uncle, the aunt, whoever it is. I'm using all pronouns that I can find. But at that point, that person is also a caregiver. Yes. And caregiver, by definition, is supposed to care for me and protect me. And this child... Who is being abused is repeatedly showered by protection from this individual, while they are still caring for them. See, a child who is a beaten up in an, an in a sexually abused manner will report the crime faster because they are being beaten for it. Yeah, but. In most situations, they are not, they are actually coddled by this person, protected by this person. And again, that environment, no, I am there for you. There is nobody else there for you. Nobody else will protect you for this. But in in very rare situations, you will also see where this person, the abuser, is trying to threaten the child. But that threaten will not work for as long as the coddling will work. So... Hmm.
0: It, I, it's not a violent. Whatever I know, it's not a violent threatening. It's like more often than not, these people t- tend to tend to develop a bit of likability. Like they learn that skill, right? And so, they, they are generally liked by children, so that they they get the opportunity. Charisma so is a
1: is an important yeah. Yeah. factor. Yes. All, uh, you know, most of the individuals that you feel who or, or you see who have, uh, been in any or for a lack of whatever, the narcissistic category of people have charisma as one of their biggest, you know, weapons. (laughs) Yes. They are extremely charismatic people because how else do you get a person to engage with you in a way that is not naturally idealistic also? It doesn't work in nature in that way. If we are not built in that way and this child is not living in a secluded, this child is not locked up in a room and only engaging with this abuser this child is going out having friends meeting parents meeting other people how is this person maintaining that structure around this child that this child doesn't go tell this to anybody Hmm. Uh, so for to do that I have to have a certain amount of charm I have to be able to maintain this child in that lack of better word again delusional state that it's only me and I am there to do this and slowly takes up the role of the caregiver They are the extension of the parents as the caregiver. So again, this child is like, this person is protecting me. This person will never harm me. This person loves me. This person is there for me. And only later, again, in hindsight, this person realizes, this child realizes that, okay, what I went through was not right. However, in a lot of situations, I've also seen that children are like, but I'm more mature than my own age group people because I went through this and this. I'm... I'm happy that this person did this to me so that I got to know about the world better. Which again may sound very odd to a lot of people. Yes. That this is you could have learned this later. There were better ways of learning this structure. There were more there is a reason why every age group has a certain, you know, set of behavioral sets that you learn or certain responsibilities build with age. Otherwise, at a five-year-old, I would have given you a life manual. Read it. But I don't want you don't you're not at that maturity level to get exposed to this. Yeah, and that's that's the hindsight which sometimes is looked at in a very faulty way by these children. Also, the hindsight also becomes faulty.
0: Yeah, it's, I mean hmm. this is how they process them.
2: I also wanted to touch upon a category that's hardly ever really spoken about. Is of co- there is one side of response to sexual violence where you get wary of engaging in sexual Contact yes, with yes. anyone. But I've also heard stories of the flip side. Yes. Right? Where you start realizing that you want to engage in sex so much. And you also, I've heard, there was this one woman who told me that she can only have rough sex. You know, she can, or she, because she has confused the idea of abusive, rough sex with being treated a certain way sexually with passion, basically that you think that if you are pushed around and touched a certain way, only then you're loved because your abuser has told you that that's how it's supposed to be. And that's skewed her entire
1: idea of pleasure. Yes.
2: I I, I am
1: so sorry. I'm going to add here. Yeah. Pornography makes it so much worse. Absolutely. Yeah. Because the Uh way that it has been, you know, shown and the access, unfortunately, um, I'm, I'm all in for the internet and I believe that it was a great invention but there has to be certain foundations around it. But when a 12-year-old, 13-year-old has access to pornographic material and they see that, you know, the kind of sexual acts that are shown there and they feel, oh, this is what is normal and this is how it's supposed to be. Just like Nidhi is saying that, you know, this person has become hardwired to be like that. Yeah. Uh, by experience, by also visualization around them and by... Facts and, uh, and, and to add to that, a lot of uh, perpetrators with children actually show this material to the child yes. so that they normalize can kind it. of reinforce it and normalize the act altogether.
0: Yeah, I think the biggest example of what you say was um, when the case of Catholic priests systematically abusing children came out. So, this was one of the primary factors that this is what happened. I mean, most of the time that priests used to show these kids some kind of pornography be it you know paper or later internet but one thing i wanted to add before i this lack of information thing you mentioned that parents don't even know how to process this or partners this lack of information i i believe is just the whole tent underneath all this passes the people don't even know the sad part about indian society is and i say indian because we generally talk about india this is the indian forum people don't even want to discuss this yeah they I actually they want don't think away. it's a lack
2: of information I think it's a lack of courage to have the conversation
0: I'm talking about like whatever the reason for that lack of information is but mm. for most of the people they don't really know how to do this yeah they want to stay away from it for various reasons be it personal societal religious whatever but it results in lack of information final things I want to ask you and these are like very basic questions like once again, but I want to ask Nidhi, you first. When you report and, and you follow up on that report, you meet that person again and again, interact with them. And you can say that in detail. What are the most prevalent hurdles you see in front of them besides the legal ones? You know, there are legal hurdles which, which are spoken at length in our media and everywhere. But besides those legal ones, what are the most prevalent hurdles you see in front of them dealing with it, talking about it or doing anything about this thing which has happened to them and which is sort of has become unwantedly become the chieftain sort of of their lives? They, internally, at least, they would always be in some way or shape or form defined by it.
2: I think the first hurdle is silence because... Uh, say even if it's a story that has been widely reported mm-hmm. it's very rare that someone actually asks the survivor what do you need or what do you how would you like people to, would you want to talk about it do you not want to talk about it hmm. people get awkward around it Right? people are awkward for, for their own reasons because they feel they don't know how to have the conversation they don't know how to approach they don't know what's the right thing to say so let's not talk about it Yeah. so I feel like the first hurdle is there is a strange silence people may talk about it with other people or to the media or to the camera or to the police but they will not speak to the survivor about it the survivor also gets caught in the legality if at all it is reported yeah uh, the first thing if at all if it abysmal is
0: abysmal numbers
2: yeah the other thing is the sense of self because also for the survivor if it is reported or if it's or whenever the survivor decides to speak up uh, it has to kind of become a little bit part of their identity for them to keep pushing and have that conversation. Yeah. But of course, there comes a point when you don't want to be defined just by that. Yes. Right? And and then people start looking at you and speaking to you only in that uh, context, um, yeah. which they don't want Yeah. Uh, that to happen. Of course, the other hurdle is uh, a healthy sexual relationship, a healthy intimate relationship. Yes. Um, being believed is a big part of uh, yes. Of healing, which even sometimes if it's reported, doesn't mean it's that doesn't mean someone believes you. Like even in the Hathris case, for example, I remember the victim's father. In that case, the the victim died, mm-hmm. and he said, "A court may prove that this happened to my daughter, but if my neighbor doesn't believe it, what is the point of me living in this village?" Yes, right. So th- it doesn't matter the court verdicts, legality is all secondhand. I think there's. Very, very immediate hurdles uh, to cross. Yeah. And it changes the entire family dynamic. So, a lot of times, uh, a a victim or a survivor ends up feeling responsible for that. So, the aftercare is very, very often not even spoken
0: about. Right. Divya, similar question to you, but in a manner like how, what are the most primary hurdles you see when people process this information? Because they come to you I imagine, when they are ready to process it, even if they don't know how to, right?
1: I'm glad you added the second part because the hardest part of my job is to sit in that room and wait for someone to come in. Yes. Unlike Nidhi, I, I don't barge Yeah, You the cannot room. chase this story. I, I can't do that for several reasons because even if I do, let's yes. say even if I know somebody who's gone through abuse and I go to them and I'm like, you know what, I'm here for you. Talk to me. In the most empathetic, using all the yes. right words where we started from, this person may just decide, I don't want to change. I can make them sit for an hour, two hours, three hours, four hours, weeks, months. Yes. They don't want to change. They don't want to change. It is, And that's the reason why I'm in the room waiting for somebody to come in. Because when this person walks in, that is my biggest hurdle with them cross. That this person believes that they need to fix something in themselves to get past this. Hmm. Because by that point, they have if not made the decision to leave or if I've not already left, they are in that space where they're, they're processing this. Most of the time that people come to me, they've already left. They've already come out of that relationship. I have had clients who are still in that abusive relationship and are finding the courage to get out of it. And then my job becomes pretty simple to kind of uh, basically resurface with them, get them out of that delusional state, get them to resurface fix their ideas about what is a healthy relationship and that hurdle is there in whatever victim role that i've seen that just re uh, realigning their understanding reintroducing the topics of relationships re uh, kind of uh, explaining to them that this is what a healthy relationship is. and sometimes i i have actually used google in sessions i've opened my screen I've been like Let's type What is a healthy relationship On Google You
0: read pointers with me So But besides the relationship factor Like the, Right For victims in general like right. Because sometimes They might not be in the relationship With the abuser I, I was talking about What are the primary hurdles You see in When people struggle with it
1: Right uh, The concept of self I think that is their biggest hurdle Concept of self, and when I say self, I am encompassing everything under this. Yes, I think this is a good place to add that example. Um, I have a client, and she still comes to me for therapy, um, and she was a, a a survivor of abuse for many years in her marriage, and but she was relatively young, and she got out of it relatively young because the family was extremely supportive. So she had that uh, one advantage, one very very big advantage mm-hmm. that she had a extremely supportive family. So today also, it's been years we still sometimes fall back into patterns of negative thought process regarding self. It took many sessions, many years of work to make her realize that she is enough. She's a good person. She's not somebody who is, you know, who will just is disposable for that matter. Because once you're out of that relationship, your existence doesn't make sense to you because your existence was attached to somebody else. You were hanging off them. So now that you've cut off that, you know, it's, it's like an umbilical cord of a different category. Yes. So now that that is cut, where do I go from here? Um, so building that sense of self is an extremely big hurdle and it is not a singular hurdle. It's something yeah. which is very important to understand. The hurdles are multiple and they go on for the, re- sometimes even the rest of your life. Yes, they can become better over a period of time. But these, it's not like, okay, I've crossed one hurdle. now, this will never reoccur. Ok, it'll keep reoccurring. And yes. that is the struggle of it all. Having said that, if if you even remove the, like we've been discussing about, you know, victims and you know, sexual abuse, but even if I remove that entire construct and I just talk about life in general, there are going to be hurdles yes. at every moment of time. For this individual, these hurdles are multifold. That is the other problem that every time a new life hurdle will come, this individual will feel incapacitated under it. And uh, with their own self under an entire burden, huge rock, every new hurdle feels like a new add-on to their existing burden. Yes. And on top of it, the family. There are very, very few families that are happy to help or are supportive enough to help in therapeutic processes uh, and, and here I'm, I'm taking time but I'll, I'll just no, add no, one example right.
0: that's the benefit uh, of a podcast
1: there was this uh, one house help and I remember that uh, one day she was our house help and she came home and she was bruised black and blue and my mother was very very concerned so my mother was like okay what's up what's happening and uh, and my mom's like, yeah, I've been seeing you fall sick very often or you're hurt very often. And she would generally be like, oh, I hit the wall, I did this, I did that, that thing happened, this thing happened. But that day she was visibly like somebody had beaten her up because yes. her eyes were swollen, her face was swollen. And my mom really got concerned. So my mother asked and she's like, what has happened? Tell me. So, um, and my mom tried to reassure her that, okay, I will not do anything about it. I will not take any, you know, action. I will not call the police. I will not do anything. But you at least tell me if, mm-hmm. and she was like, okay, I'll, I'll, you know, help you out, fix your wounds, everything. Um, and this woman goes like, oh, my husband beats me up every second day or third day. So I earn money. He takes the money. He drinks. He comes back. He beats me up. Then he violently has sex with me. And then it's, it's basically yeah. like a cycle that keeps on repeating yeah. over and over again so my mother uh, was listening to this and then I was there and then my mother asked a very sensible second question she's like don't you stay with your mother-in-law does nobody else in the house hear or see or does anything about it because my mother's like okay if my son comes home and if he's a drunk and tries to even raise his volume I'll be the one who'll be doing this to him so hmm. why is this happening and, uh, and this woman turns around and she's like it's my mother-in-law who tells me tells him to beat me up yes so that was a big shock for me. The cycle me. of violence. The yes. cycle of violence, where one person who has been the victim for so long and has kind of more so just dipped into that entire system, is now encouraging more people to engage in it because the the uh, the thought process there was, where the woman said that my mother-in-law says that if he doesn't beat me up, I will get out of his hands and go away so like nidhi said to maintain that dominance and that control people engage in that violence it's it's a power struggle it is always a power struggle because sex is actually not difficult to find and adding on to uh, what nidhi said that it's it's people don't have the courage to talk because people don't even use the right words hmm. yes. let us where, let us start with words which is where i feel like
2: even with supportive families like i've often Spoken to uh, fathers of survivors, right? And I've realized that... I mean, the world we live in is a man's world. So, in some way, this incident also for them becomes about them. Where they have literally said... They felt emasculated. That their daughter got raped. And that she didn't tell uh, them when it happened. So that they could take action and be the man in that situation. So, there are so many people... Who need care in that moment, right? Yes. Like a mother feels like she has given everything and still the daughter didn't trust them enough. And this is a big part of sexual violence in reporting. The time that's that, that passes between. Yeah. Right? And the number of questions raised on that time. Um, why didn't you leave? Why didn't you tell? Why didn't you leave? Yeah. You must have enjoyed it. Why didn't you ever realize? Yeah. So these questions also like and and the people around then have to cope with it. And they also need Counseling, yeah, so, so
0: sort of healthy behavior and healthy scenarios don't compound, but the ignorance and the foolhardy yeah. things keep yeah. compounding themselves. Yeah. Uh, so things, what you were saying, I, have, I, I am a court junkie, and I sort of study uh, violence, the criminal violence. It, 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 don't ask me for, for an explanation. But Carl Jung said, the healthy man does not torture others. Generally, it's the tortured one who turned into torturers. So it's a very n- real thing that that's true for crime and that's true for I think I, sexual I violence I think most
1: thing. people who are the abusers have felt a certain um, have felt dominated by somebody more powerful yeah. uh, when they were younger that's kind of like the theoretical science behind it and yeah. when we talk about etiology of why something is happening yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's one of those psychological reasons why we say that because this person was uh, or probably had a dominant father or a very dominant mother, and they were okay, probably abused as a child. And abuse can here be punitive punishment yes, also, yes. not necessarily sexually abused, but that could also be the case. Um, then they are more likely to kind of do this to somebody else because everybody wants certain control. See, yeah. every human being, it's a very natural factor. I want control, and everybody. You keep giving them more control, they will keep enjoying that control. And it it becomes a certain, um, it's, it's like an addiction. Because there are actually, if you look at it biologically, it does take off certain neurons in your head. It does have a certain pathway. You do follow that pathway. Yes. There are pathways to this and extremely biological. So if one person gets that taste of a little bit of dominance over somebody else, you would always want to kind of keep going back to it. It it becomes a fetish.
0: Yeah. Uh, and, and, and the thing is, this happens especially, I imagine, when they have not been, you know, some sort of counseling and have been able to process what right, happened. Right.
1: Right. No. Why? It's not just accessibility to counseling, but the fact that uh, I don't feel it's a problem. I I feel that. this is normal. This happens. Like with this woman, it was very normal to her that you know this is the kind of cycle that goes on because this has happened to my mother-in-law. It has happened to her mother-in-law, yeah. her mother-in-law. So generation. It's been
0: normalized. Yeah.
1: Sexual trauma can also be generational trauma. Yeah,
0: it's a generational trauma. Like generational trauma is also caste-based. Also, exactly. which we haven't brought up because, but deliberately I didn't bring up because yeah, I wanted to different. isolate there are so many aspects of it but we've spoken long enough I think although the topic hasn't ended it's not even close to you know being finished but everybody has time constraints so do our listeners and I want to end this on this note that we specifically I mean me and our producer chose uh, this topic for a separate episode because the staggering number warrants it at least in my opinion and uh, do send us your feedback, be it good or bad, which will help us improve this podcast. So, thank you Nidhi, thank you Divya for joining News Laundry on this conversation.
2: Thank you, Shardul, and
0: Chanchal. So thank you
1: for having us.
0: You'll find a few links and helplines in the show notes. If you are not sure who to trust, but still need information, these avenues may prove useful. And always remember, we are here for you. Thank you for listening and do write to us if you have any suggestions, inputs about how we can better this podcast. This podcast was supported by Google News Initiatives News Equity Fund. News Laundry is possible because of our paying subscribers. We don't run corporate or government ads.
2: You too can be part of changing the news model. Go to newslaundry.com slash subscription Be a part of the community that pays to keep news independent. For the smoothest news laundry experience, download our app. Watch our shows, listen to our podcasts, read our reports. Stay informed. Pay for news, protect democracy,
0: save the world.